Welcome to State of the 38th. I'm your host, Alex Weissman, here with my co-host, Henry Edgar. Edgar. <laughs> and uh, we have a rising political star, Tay Anderson, who's running for the school board in District 4, correct? Yeah. Welcome to the pod. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. So, why don't you outline for our listeners who don't know, like, how school board works and what sort of decisions school board members make? Um, the school board members are basically the judicial branch of our school system. They make and decide the policies for Denver Public Schools. And um, when you relate that to the Supreme Court, they are basically the Supreme Court um, of Denver Public Schools. The superintendent would basically be your face or your president, your executive. Um, and then it, it trickles down. So the school board members govern the Denver the Denver Public Schools, make different policies to create um, and craft around the whole child to make sure that we put our core values first of equity, collaboration, um, students first, and, and the list goes on. Um, and so the, the school board ha- is what votes to open, close, new policies, sanctuary schools, um, et cetera. And so they have a large impact, and I don't think people understand how large of their their impact is on the students of Denver Public Schools when they come to make a decision because their votes um, don't just um, equate to just their sub-district, they vote for the entire city. And they're elected, uh, five members are elected through a sub-district and two are elected through the whole city. So how does like the legislative process work at school board? Does does everybody get a vote and is it just a majority rule or what sort of mechanisms does school board make policies through so if there is a resolution let's say to have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in all the schools that would be your only source of lunch um and it was they would hear the pros and they would hear the cons of it from people that would come and give um those uh testimonials to the school board their uh, public comments actually um and then the school board will then vote um and then it is a majority vote four is the majority um, out of seven because the superintendent doesn't have a vote on the school board and so if myself and three others vote no to have only PB&Js at lunchtime then that would be that resolution would then fail but if myself and three others voted yes um, for PB&Js at lunchtime then that resolution would then pass and it'd be implemented throughout the schools and it would trickle down from Bozeburg, Greta Mar- Assistant Superintendent Greta Martinez, the instructional superintendents to the principals, to the teachers, to the students. It trickles down. Okay. Um, so why don't you outline just very briefly, uh, you, you've gotten a lot of coverage for your story and why you're running, but if you could just for podcast outline why you decided to run at such a young age. You're only 19, right? Yep. So I've been part of several marginalized groups within Denver Public Schools of being a student that's failed classes, missed school, and almost uh, had the opportunity, almost uh, didn't have the opportunity to graduate um, and being one of those and being a student of color also when you're in these marginalized groups and you feel like you don't have a voice and you feel like nobody's advocating for you it takes a toll on you and so I had enough of seeing students through Denver Public Schools especially in my area the one of the largest school di- sub districts in district uh, Denver Public Schools um, which is district 4 um, and seeing so many of those students wanting to have a champion, an advocate, um, somebody that would really go to bat for them, and they don't know who was that person to go to bat for them. Um, and that's why I got into this race, was to make sure that the marginalized groups um, had a voice and they knew that they had a champion. Also to show that we need more accountability and uh, transparency within our board and our budget. Um, For too long, we continue to ask people for more money on the bond and mill levy overrides, but we never tell the taxpayers where their money is going. 
So myself and several other candidates were calling for an audit on the school board um, budget right now so that we can actually show the community this is where your money has been going and we want to divert X funds into the students um, per capita rate or we want to divert this into this uh, school so that we can make sure that every public school is reaching its highest potential. Um, I Another strong thing about um, my campaign is that my grandmother was an educator for over 35 years and my family has over 100, 100 years of education experience built up and so I know what it means to have um, the experience of having to have educators in your family to understand oh the these are what educators go through because a lot of teachers are concerned that if a 19 year old gets elected that's never served in a leadership position in a classroom how can he make a decision for my students and for me well, the answer is, is I understand what you're going through and I've listened to the concerns of teachers and it's not about who's the boss, it's about what can I do to support you as your next school board member. And it also sounds like you have a good deal of experience both with politics and student yeah. government specifically? Okay, cool. Yeah, served three terms as a student body president, longest in the state. Um, I was the chair of the Colorado High School Democrats. Youth for National Change Chief Operation Officer, which is a group that lobbies and advocates for um, laws that affect young people. Um, and so I continue to make um, sure that people know that I will be their advocate and I will be their champion. Cool. Yeah. So you've made a lot of news specifically with your views on charter schools and school closures. Mm -hmm. Could you outline what those are for us? So right now, currently, the Denver Public School Board is consistently closing several of our traditional public schools, elementary through middle through high school. Um, and they are continuing to affect neighborhoods, especially the Gilpin neighborhood. When Gilpin was voted to be closed, when our own board member voted to close Gilpin, it, we promote this ide ideology of school choice, but we cannot say that we have equitable school choice if their parents' first choice is Gilpin. Um, and we cannot continue to, schools are not for sale. And then second, um, our schools are not a corporate business. We don't need to be running schools under the best interest of corporate dollars under the Koch, the Koch brothers, the Waltons, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We need to run it in the best interest of our community and our students. And so if we do have a charter school within the area, um, because I know that I'll be representing 70 schools if elected in November, and I have majority of them are charter schools. So the note that I will tell the charter schools is, look, you're going to be open and transparent where you get your extra funding. You're going to accept every student within your building or within your community and to your building. You're going to make sure that you have an arts program to su suffice the needs of students that want to exp express themselves via the arts. And then for our students uh, that have uh, special needs, we need to make sure that each and every one of them have the opportunity to have a special needs program within that building. You can still operate as a charter, but you just need to ha have those equitable opportunities for parents, for the students, and for the community. Um, and if a parent asked me, where would you want, where should I send my kid? I'm going to point them in the direction of a public school, even if it is a failing public school, because I will let them know, like, look, that school isn't failing because of it failed us. We failed them as a district. We didn't give them the necessities they needed. We didn't allow them to have that opportunities um, that they could to make sure that every child in that building succeeds. And when it comes to co-located campuses, especially with um, co-locating to either two high schools or co-locating either a middle school and high school, it takes away the identity of the a traditional school that was there. 
Um, you look at Manual High School, where Manual High School has been in the area since 1894 and now has a middle school. The middle school's tradition is it, it's a great addition to give us more to more students. But if you look at it, why did we need a middle school? It was because of the failed implementations of Denver Public Schools. You look at George Washington High School. Next year, they'll have a high school within a high school. And I don't agree with adding another high school of saying, oh, this is a way for students to give credit recovery, saying, no, George Washington can offer those courses so that they can do the credit recovery because I went to TJ and I, and I did credit recovery at a traditional high school. I even did credit recovery my senior year at Manual. So it's possible instead of adding a brand new school within a building with a new principal, knowing that there's going to be friction within the building. Now, one of the issues with charter schools is that they, like a lot of charter schools have been open in Denver, and that seems to drop the student count mm -hmm. at public schools. Mm -hmm. Would you oppose opening new charter schools, or do you just want like more accountability and more transparency? I am officially calling for a moratorium on opening all charter schools, which means that I will not approve any more charter schools to be added to District 4. Like I said, there are 70 schools. Um, 70 schools that aren't even fully resourced yet, including charters. Sure. And so I'm not going to vote to or advocate for another school to be open if we're, and I won't even advocate for a school to be closed because we need to put more resources into that building. I believe in that we need to, we can no longer continue to have a school open one year and then close it another year and then just say, hey, school choice allows you to pick any other school. No. There's no reason why students are trying to outsource from G Green Valley Ranch because they want to go to a public high school going all the way out to George South or TJ when those are the only three good public high schools in our district that are left uh, or, or north. And so you, you don't see parents wanting to send their kids across the city just to get an education. There needs to be that equitable education in their area. So if it comes down to, oh, a school closes and now there's somebody applying, I'm not gonna open another charter school. I'm gonna advocate that we get another sure. public school so that people know that, hey, you have opportunities and resources because you look in Green Valley Ranch, there on the Evie Dennis campus, it's nothing but charters. And so there, there is no choice of, of if you want to go to the Green Valley Ranch school, uh, you want to go to school out there, you majority have a charter school that's out there. I want to make sure that you have a public school to choose from so you have choice. If sure. you really want to have choice, it needs to be equitable. It can't just say, here's 13 charter schools, you pick from these schools, that's school choice. We need to make sure there's public schools and charter schools if they're going to continue to exist within District 4. So one of the main arguments for charter schools where, uh, and just for our listeners, charter schools are where private institutions receive public dollars in order to provide education. Mm -hmm. One of the main arguments for that is that it bids education and uh, educational outcomes up because when students get to choose, they can go to more high achieving schools, which incentivizes better achievement. How do you plan on bolstering student achievement at traditional neighborhood schools when they have failed in the past? by shining the light and giving them the attention that they deserve. When you look at DSST Cole High School versus Manual High School, you have Manual High School, which we all know that was, was probably ranked one of the lowest performing high schools in the district, but now has scores that are coming up to compete with South High School in the yellow zone heading to green. And you have DSST Cole High School, which is a which is a predominantly blue school because of the chain that already exists within DPS. They're, they're the schools for your college acceptance rates. But here's the thing that people don't know, is that some schools within Colorado, Adams State is one of them. They accept everybody from a DSST, and so if you are that that's a way to cheat the four-year automatic acceptance rate. That's just like if I said, oh hey, I'm the principal of Manual, all of my students automatically get accepted to CCD. That yeah. means I automatically have 
hundred percent college acceptance. I, that's all I have to say is all of my students go to college, but do, are they really going to college or are they going to, are we just slapping that name across saying, oh, they're going to college? Yes, post-secondary high school readiness is, is something that's key. However, we need to shine the light on those, those failing schools and say, look, this is what's going on. These are the struggles of these students that actually go into these buildings. Because I bet if people never at, sat down to ask me the time, they would never know that I was a homeless student or was in foster care or failed classes. They would just expect a 4.0 student, the best of the best, the cream of the crop yeah. to run for the school board. They would not expect somebody that understands what it means to fail to run for the school board. Because then that, that means because they, they have the statistic and a stereotype built against me already when they see he's failed a class or he's missed X amount of days or he's missed X amount of classes. When it, it is more of look, actually go into the building and figure out what the students actually are going through. We can't make a judgment off of a school and deem it as a bad school because we throw a standardized test in their face and say, well, this test is yeah. designed for you to fail. We just need to see where it puts you for next year. When that really doesn't help a student because it's a one size fit all test model and every student doesn't test the same. If I give somebody um, a park assessment and tell them to read an essay that's at a ninth grade level, but they're still reading at a fourth grade level, how is that student expected to pass that test? Yeah, for sure. So how, so I assume that you would value uh, like growth over proficiency mm -hmm. in measuring standardized tests, um, but what, how can we improve the way we evaluate students like specifically? I think um, the one of the ways that somebody was talking to me about was the portfolio based model is where each student has their own portfolio and you get to see their growth as a student instead of just saying here's your cum cumulative growth as a grade or as a school. Um, really getting to see where the students are. I know that map testing, uh, map testing helped me tremendously just because it was a simple, easy test that I got my score at the end of the time and I knew where I needed to place next time. That incentivized me to say, oh, I got a, a 130 this time. Now I want to make sure I get a 145 next time. Um, or if we start pushing the, the ACT Aspire model within all four grades, instead of waiting to train kids for the SAT and the ACT in junior year, we need to start at a freshman year and not worry about tests that aren't going to matter to a student's future or their college endeavors. We need to focus on what is it going to get them into college. It's going to be their GPA, their letters of rec, and their, um, and their SAT or ACT score. And so as a board member, I want to focus and devote my time to training kids ready to go um, for the SAT and the ACT so that because it's not just a test that oh the SAT the SAT helps you get into college um, Park doesn't help you. It just gives you gives the school district a, a base to say this is where this school is at and we need to be set and stop saying this is where this school is at. We need to start looking at where is this student at? Where, where is this teacher at and where how do we help them and support them individually because if we just throw them in one group and we say hey everybody you here failed you failed our school your grade failed and you might be the smartest kid in the class and you got the best score on the park and you're like dude i'm a failure yeah. um but you, you're really not helping me understand what can i do better other than just saying we all failed our school sucks now and we need to continue we need to just kind of get over it no we can't just get over it. we need to look and see where does the individual student need help with so that we can push them over the finish line and say look we we're not going to hold your hand up till graduation we're going to hold your hand and then once you're a senior, we're gonna a senior or a junior, we're gonna let you go explore the world yourself and then come back and ask us those questions. How do you do this? How do you apply for scholarships? How do you do this? And so um, we're looking at a, a different high school curriculum as well, um, which means we are 
seeing a lot of students that aren't returning to college um, once accepted. I've seen it happen several times where the retention rates of the college of college, especially in DSSTs, DSSTs retention rate is pretty low. Um, students are accepted, but they don't go or they don't come back for a second year or continue college. And so we need to make sure that um, that we are modeling a high school curriculum in order to for them to know what they're going into to college. And so where the funding comes in and we're looking at the best way to do this is by having a two year model of general studies and courses of freshman and sophomore year and your junior and senior year we can either we have classes that'll be there at the co at the high school like a cu succeeds class or you can go take a college class and it's paid for by the district at ccd and so we're going to try to make sure that we can give as many students that equitable opportunities not only graduate with a high school diploma but with an associate's degree as well so that we're also showing them like hey, when you go off and you graduate from here you know what to do it's not holding your hand past your graduation date because I still see it. I still have friends calling the counselor saying, well, what do I do next? What do I do next? I don't know what to do. And that's not fair to the counselor because now the counselor has a brand new group of seniors that they're trying to get ready across the finish line while they still have 20 seniors still trying to ask them what do they need to do to get ready for college in a month. So how does the school board's decisions, like how do they interact with state and national policy that has put into place these harmful testing practices? So one of the biggest things that I believe that we can do as a school district is we have to work with the state legislators to pass a state law. Mm -hmm. um, and we have to work with the State Board of Ed too because it can we can make laws at the state level that don't have to reflect. That's kind of like the legalization of marijuana. So Colorado can be a legal state for marijuana, but then it can be illegal on the federal level. The federal level can say every child must take a standardized test, and I want to look in with the state representatives and state senators to say, how do we make sure that um, the state standardized testing is reduced? Because a lot of the te testing, it's not a national standardized test, it's a state standardized test. Sure. Um, and because of the No Child Left Behind Act, that helped or that hurt um, us a lot with the uh, standardized testing with the, um, with the students, and then now we have to look back to say, all right, we're here, we want to get here, but how do we get here with working with the government and working with the state and local local and the state board of education and the state legislator and the city government to say, this is what we want to do within our school district because if we can get enough people to say, standardized testing is not helping our students, then we can take that to the state level and say, look, legislators these are your constituents talking we're lobbying yep. we're lobbying we're advocating as a school board saying we need you to change these practices denver school district one it needs you to come and change these practices because we can't do it on our with our with our power and our authority we need you to do it um and so it's it's going to be a long rigorous conversation over the next four years of my first term um, but it's going to be something that is going to be, I'm not going to give up and uh, give in on. I'm going to continue to devote my time to making sure that we reduce standardized testing. And I told students all the time, it's not going to happen overnight. A lot of my promises and a lot of my campaign wishes and aspirations, they're not just going to happen on day one of being elected. We have to flip every, we have to flip every single seat that's up for election to, in order to flip the, get the change and progressive change that we want to see or the same thing's just going to continue to happen. We'll still be a thorn in their, their side, but we'll never have change really sure. happen. So I want to put a pin in that because I want to come back to mm -hmm. that in a little while, but let's backtrack for a second and talk more specifically about individualized student mm -hmm. measurement. One of the ways that 
people decided was a good way to measure how students and both the teacher and teachers were performing was the school performance framework. That's something that you came out against in your platform. Mm -hmm. Why is that not the way to do individualized tracking? Because it seems like a lot of those sort of measures are logistically difficult and do put more of a burden on teachers. So how do you balance the logistical challenges of doing that with the need to measure so the SPF is flawed in several ways because it, 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 it the heavy factor is standardized testing. Um, and they group it all up into one group on the SPF framework, and that's how they grade the school. Um, when you look at the closure of Gilpin, Gilpin missed the, missed the SPF by one point. One point. And they still closed the school. You look at Manuel High School, who's consistently failed for 10 straight years and has had six different principals in 10 years. But we continue to, but they've missed the SPF score several times. But because community members stood up and they were like, no, enough's enough. And they didn't have any replacements for manual at the time. So there, there was no reason to really close the school because there was no replacement for it. And so it, it's not fair to the students of Gilpin nor the parents of Gilpin to say, hey, you all suck. You're all in this group of just poor performing children and you're not gonna excel. We need to tell those parents and those students and those teachers, how can we help you? How can we make sure that if we do keep this model of the SPF, that it's not graded so heavy on your standardized testing, where it is, where we can factor, where we can evenly factor everything in and not have a 52% of your SPF is on, and that's just a random number, 52% of your SPF is on your, S, or your, your test scores, and the rest is on small other things, when that, that's not fair to the school, because now if we have, if a school is getting students that aren't reading at grade level, or ELL students that can't take the, can't take these standardized testing as well as a, 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 a English speaking student, then it's not fair for the school to get that, that report card or that grade and say, hey, you failed the system when the system failed to meet your needs or help you re with your resources. And that's one of the biggest things that I've also challenged with with charter schools is that our majority of our charter schools have brand new equipment. They get brand new, they get a remodel on their building if they get a DPS building or they get a brand new school. And they have the newest technology. You go to a school like Gilpin, has no air or, or your manual has no air you you you're just getting stuff shipped in you go to majority of our public high schools and they're like the lowest of lows when it comes to remodeling because our buildings are so old but it's not fair to us as public school students to watch a charter school get built across the street and it's a brand new building that can still fit the exact same amount of students as our school but it, it, it is a brand new freaking building and, and it's not helping us because then where did all that money come from to build that brand new building? Yeah. Okay, so let's unpack a little bit of that. Um, let's go first back to standardized tests mm -hmm. for a second because it sounds like you were saying two things. That one, standardized tests are ineffective at like drawing lines and deciding when to close schools and that, that but then you also lay out some pretty reasonable changes. Obviously, you know, students shouldn't have to be held to the same standards as kids who speak English first. But let's go back to what you said first. When would you consider closing a school? Would you never close any schools in Denver? Or at what point, like, should we just call it quits? I believe in changing the leadership of the building um, because I've seen it happen firsthand with my high school where we literally were the lowest performing high school for almost eight straight years. Nick Dawkins walks in, 
kicks the old way out and brings a new way in and now they're having test scores come up and everything's going up and everything's going good. Um, and so closing a school is not going to be um, a priority nor is it going to be something that I take lightly. If somebody ever asked, will I close this school? And if I ask, um, I do not want to, I would never want to close the school. I wouldn't want to, if anything, if it came drastically, it's, I would ra rather restart and start all over. Um, with the same school, with just different leadership, different model, um, without trying to put a charter in the school and say, hey, now this is your issue. Um, because that's what happens is that we close the school and we just sell it out to a charter and we say, we don't have to govern you, we don't have to touch you, it's your, it's your responsibility now. And that's not right. Um, so I don't believe in being a sellout to the community and that's basically what it is, is selling out your community or the constituents that you represent when you close a school. Um, because those people are relying on you to make sure that their students have the best education possible and keep their schools open. But if you want, if you just say, hey, this public school doesn't work for me and I'm just going to close it and open a charter school, then that doesn't help the families or the, the, the students that go to that building. It just told them that you're not good enough and that we're going, that this is the best way to go is by a model that we don't have to actually control. That a model that's actually proven by our test records to work. And so I wouldn't, um, like I said, I would never, I, my votes would probably be no on a school closure every single time. Um, because I believe in going into the schools to learning what the, the, the challenges of the school is. Instead of me just voting my conscience, I'm going to actually walk through those schools and figure out what do those students need. Um, and then tell the board, say, instead of closing it, let's add 200 more thousand dollars or $2 million to this school and let's give them the funding that they deserve so that they can revamp their school. Let's help them make sure that their school stays because when you close a school, you close a tradition and you close a culture. And one of the biggest things that people know that they don't know is that when you have a school that's been in the area for over 50 years or a school that's been in the area for over 100 years and you try to close that building, people will rise up and they'll be like, no, this is my school. This is where I graduated from or this is where I went to school at and I'm not going to let you just come in and tear down my school and just sell it out. And that's what I continue to hear is alumni from a lot of schools, elementary schools that they say I even went to. They come back and they stand up because they know that they want to see that school succeed. And if our board doesn't listen, then that's going to be a challenge that is going to have to be faced by the entire board um, when they're when, it, when the election is happening. When the election happens in November, is to say this way hasn't worked. It has not worked, um, and we've given it ten years to work. And if it and if it consistently fails, then. Um, we need to find out a new way to do things, but with the best interest of having a public education within the building. What funding powers does the school board have? They control the entire budget. So they know, they kind of divvy out where funding goes um, to every school they understand. They have to really have a growth mindset of understanding what school needs what the most. Because of 1375, um, now the bond and mill levy money is equally split, split between charters and public schools, which can also be a, a burden as well because charter schools still get those private funding funders even though they say that they're non um what is it a non-profit um in reality they can still under the colorado charter school law they can still get uh donors to donate to their building and so the and sometimes those donors aren't transparent if you get a random check for a million dollars to help your school and you're still you're getting district money on top of that 
and the, you have a public school in the area that you see is failing, so you go knock on their parents' doors to get all the students over there. Each student has a price tag on them. The more students you get in your building, the more funding you get, plus the funding you're getting out of, uh, out of corporate dollars. It, it just does, it's not fair to the public school. But then the students that leave wind up getting, like, like in theory, mm-hmm. right? The students that leave to go to the charter school are using their free market will to get a better education, right? So you're raising, you're, you're, you're increasing the incentive for the traditional public school to boost test scores and boost outcomes so that they can keep their students. And then the charter school is also bidding educational outcomes up, right? It's a race to the top at that point. Right? And, and yeah, that's where it's not a, it, schools are not a business. And that's what people have to understand is that we're not going, we cannot have our schools operating as a business of saying, oh, well, you don't like shopping at Walmart? Come here to Target and shop with us. That's just not fair to those parents that are in the that are in that area that say, hey, this is the string of charter schools we have. And this is how great they're doing. But in reality, they, they're, 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 all they focus on is standardized testing, standardized testing, passing the test. And are our students really learning anything when they're doing just standardized testing or just focusing on standardized testing? Or do they learn when they're actually getting a curriculum-based education, which is actually in the public schools that we need to continue to enforce and then help our teachers give, give those opportunities? And so if we have people utilizing the school choice method and they want to go to this charter school, they need to understand the benefits and the, the pros and the cons. And as a school board member, I'm going to give them the pros and the cons of each school. I'm not going to just say, don't go to a charter school. They're all bad. If you want to go to a charter school, I'll walk you through the charter school and I'll let you figure out what's going on. But I'm also taking you to a public school and let you know what's going on. And I'm going to let you know where I lean um, as your school board member. So wouldn't this also mean that changing the testing system to track individual growth, um, also kind of resolve this in a sense and mean that schools competing to have their students grow more would still be a good thing for for the students for i would say for can can you reframe that yeah yeah okay so if we if we move away from the current model of standardized testing where we then track the school's performance towards something where individual students' performance is tracked so that they can grow and understand what they have to do. Wouldn't, in theory, that means that if different schools like compete to raise their students' growth as opposed to just getting a better school performance and getting more kids for funding, like doesn't that it just at least somewhat resolve the, the issue? Right, because like you're just allowing for more individualized choice. Sure, okay, so, so that's, uh, that's fine then. I mean, like it would just, it would just open like market information so that you could be like a more reliable consumer of education right i mean i, I don't know i think okay. one of the biggest things that people have to fact look at the factors is um if we have a individual based learning model it, it is really about the student's growth it's really about helping the student individually make sure that they're at grade level um, instead of just saying this is your group, you're not a great. This group's not a great level. Yeah. Because there are some students in that group that are like probably outpacing their peers by several grade levels, and so we need to help them get make sure that they're getting the proper necessities that they need, and then also helping those students that are that are performing bad and make sure that they can perform at grade level. Um, and by us, because they like I said, they all have a price tag, and if we have six students that are going to a charter school that are only being that are this hammering the standardized testing and that's all they do is really just kind of focus on this the testing and this college-based model and just really getting ready for college like like the majority of charter schools are then um of course 
That's students. That's all they know is standardized testing. That's all they're programmed to know. Of course, they're just going to excel. But if you have a school that is a public school that's focusing not only just on curriculum and also the arts and also electives and several other things and standardized testing, then that also plays a um, a large factor into okay, well, how do we make sure that these students here are getting everything that they need because they're they get other opportunities that these students at charter schools aren't getting they get to have more liberties in these schools that charter schools are that they than the charter schools do and we need to factor in everything that they goes on their plate not only at school but at home as well because you can have a student that is in school that could care less about school because he has he or she has family and she's at home and grit is not something that we need to be implementing within our schools because it only tells students that are going through hard situations kind of get over it when you're in school. And that's not what we should be doing. We need to be, teachers need to be able to know where their, their students are coming from, nurture their students, because it's not, school's not a babysitting or a daycare. It, it, it is a place where you're supposed to grow an educated bond with other individuals, um, where your teachers are supposed to help you learn those, those learn where you want to go, and then also help you step into your greatness eventually. So how does the school board get their revenue? Does the state allocate it to the school board individually, and then the school board allocates it to individual schools? Um, bond and mill levy factors in. The state has a budget for schools, and I believe there are federal dollars, some federal dollars that go to schools. So, and how does the taxpayer bill of rights factor into that? Because you can't raise, like, like how would the school board raise revenue, is my question. The bond and mill levy, okay. excuse me. Um, they just ask voters to increase their taxes um every four years and then they say this is what the money's going to go to this 900 million dollars or whatever it's going to go to um xyz and above and that's how they they have to pitch it to the to the voters and the voters have to decide whether they're going to allow it or they're not going to allow it because it seems like if you did move away from the charter based <clears throat> system you would have to spend a lot more money on bailing out failing schools right so would you be proposing bond and mill levies in order to increase funding? Or would you just reallocate funding away from charter schools to traditional neighborhood schools? I'd reallocate funding away from having so many administrators within the central office. And then also by making sure that the, uh, that um, everybody has equitable funding. It's one thing to have equality, and it's a different thing to have equity. Um, so you can every school can get 25 grand. That's equal. But which school needs it the most is what I'm going to look at. Um, which school needs the funding the most and which school can I help succeed um, with the most that need that has that that funding. Um, and then we, we are going to have to take a step back and look at the bond and mill levy and where do we need to allocate the funding and the sources of money to. So why are there too many administrators? You look at DPS and Jeffco, roughly about the probably 10,000 students short in Jeffco, but they're basically at the, they're in the top five of student population. Jeffco, DPS has four times more administrative staff than Jeffco. There is no reason why we have these subcommittees that hold 20 people that are getting salaries of 60 grand a year or more, or 30 grand or more, 
and all they're doing is sitting in a cubicle and planning different events for the district or all they're doing is sitting in a cubicle to outreach to the community. We need to make sure that um, this is where the school board plays in is we don't need to send subcommittees to go advocate for the school board and say, oh, well, we're here listening for, no, the school board needs to go out and do it themselves. Um, you, you signed up for the job, you, you ran an election, you got elected, you need to, you need to do it. Um, and so we, I really believe in reducing the administrative staff at DPS headquarters instead of having 17 to 20 people per subcommittee and having a full building of just uh, administrators, we need to allocate a lot of that funding into some, some of those schools that need the extra resources to, or the resources to help. And so I believe it's possible. We just have to look at what teams do we really need and what teams do we not need and who can take on what job and then what jobs can the school board take on to do community outreach. What school districts nationwide do you look to as examples for Denver to emulate? Like where are, because it seems like the best school districts also happen to be the ones that are fully embracing changes in thinking about school choice and are pushing for uh, like more free market activity. I don't have an answer to that. I, uh, I want DPS to be the model district for all, but it cannot be the model district if we're treating students like they're for sale, if they're on a market where this student is worth $6,000. Do you want this student? Do you want to get him? Come to our school. Um, and so I want to make sure that every that DPS is the beacon for schools around our nation, but it cannot be the way it is currently. We have to restructure and make sure that it, because we cannot say we're Denver public schools if some of our schools that are using the word public aren't serving the greater needs of the public of their community. What is the consensus on the school board around these issues? Like how are other school board members? They're all the same. They're, they're they, they seven no vote. Um, they, they vote together. They're called Democrats for Education Reform. They're really not Democrats if they love education reform because if you look at the background of education reform, it's the exact same thing that Betsy DeVos is pushing at a national level, which is a Republican ideology. Um, and so we cannot have this model of school choice and, oh, everybody has this free market and everybody can go where they want um, if we're, and then you try to condemn Betsy DeVos because she's Trump's education secretary, but if you're supporting the ideals that she's pushing out, you're as bad as she is. And so you need to, and so the school board members need to own their, own their colors. If they're going to push school choice, they need to just say that, hey, we're not Democrats for education reform because that's how they continue to get elected. They run on this ideology of, hey, we're just a bunch of liberals that want to put, or liberals and Democrats that want to just push out the conservative views of our school district and make sure that Denver is a progressive city all around. But we're going to emulate what the Secretary of Education is doing at the national level and saying, hey, school choice is great, charter schools are good, vouchers are bad. But I mean, like, President Obama was also pretty pro-charter, right? Yeah. So he's just as bad as DeVos in that regard? In education stance, yes. Okay. Um, and that, that goes for several of our legislators in the state house that are, that are, that are great people. Um, Mike Johnston is a great person. President Obama, they're great people. Um, however, when it comes to their education stance, they suck. And so that is why governor, I didn't have the opportunity to vote for Obama. 
Um, and that's why in the gubernatorial race, I haven't even supported the candidate because they all have some sort of ties um, with the charter school movement. And they are they're they're not standing on the same side. And you can be a great human being. You can. It is possible for you to be the best human being out there, but to have that one flaw, it just can turn you off. And that's what's turning voters off is like, hey, I can be running for, let's say if I was running for state representative, but my stance on LGBTQ students or LGBTQ community sucked. People wouldn't vote for me in a majority liberal city because that one piece of my platform sucked. And I could be the best person there is out there. I, I could literally be the bit the nicest family guy, the nicest guy you could have ever meet, but that just one piece of my platform could turn you off to not vote for me. So why do we have a school board which is all pro charter if you are saying that the people don't like charter schools? Because people are not nobody pays attention to a school board election. This is the first time in a while that people are actually paying attention to a school board election because there's an African-American 18, 19 year old running for the school board. That's one of the biggest reasons, and I don't want to sound cocky or arrogant, that's one of the biggest reasons why people have turned their attention to a school board race. In 2015, I didn't hear a word about the school board election in the news or anything. I watched it on election night. I didn't hear anything about it. But now because there's a young person running, there's the majorities up, there's four great people running, Trump's president, that's what also factors into it because if Trump didn't get elected president, I would not be running for the school board because that's where I met majority of my supporters at is um, is through resistance rallies and resistant organizations. And so they um, seeing those people and getting to know those people um, is what what actually helped my campaign get ready to boost and that's what that's why like if hillary was elected president i believe people would care but not even really care about a school board election because everybody would just we wouldn't be protesting we wouldn't have a reason to resist we wouldn't need to be pushing still pushing a progressive i mean well we still would push for progressive values but like you know it would be not at the pace that it is now everybody would be just as it was just back in the obama days where we paid attention to the midterm the 20 or the and the presidential elections and now that Trump's president, every election matters because you can flip a school board that can shake up the entire city and then it can it can disregard what's happening in Washington, but really focusing on what the city is. And so because I got into this race, it helped shine the light. And so that's why people are now awake or woke in our to millennials words um, to see what's happening at the school board level and digging deeper into it because i've had several people that are like well i voted for uh, mike johnston and i helped or mike johnson in district three i helped him campaign and those are the same people that are working on my campaign that are like you helped wake me up it, it i did not realize the inequities of our school district until now so one of the things you talked about was that there are too many administrators focusing on community outreach and i you know that was just an example um but it also sounds like one of the issues you've isolated is just misinformation and a lack of involvement. Is that one of the things you'll focus on? Yeah, I, I believe in reaching out to the community. I'm not going to be a school board member that gets elected one one term and then doesn't go. It goes ghost and then appears um, when I need your vote again. That's where majority of the school board members have done. They they go to vote on the school board. They listen to the concerns. They only go to events that concern them for the district. And then when it times to need their vote, they're everywhere. Like it, it is it is weird. And so that's what I called out. I said, it is not acceptable for you to be um, 
down for the people and anti-DeVos and anti-President Trump now that you need to vote. Because when we started this resistance in November, you weren't with us at all. And I've been to every single resistance movement there is. I'm part of the resistance. Um, And so when I am looking at the crowd and and speaking to people and I'm seeing the same faces of of, of people, and then I see Barbara O'Brien or Mike Johnson or Shella Spiritu pop up and I'm just like, whoa, that just throws my whole course off. But this is the, or, or Jennifer Baker or anybody, this is what I know is that they all have campaign propaganda with them. They all have a t-shirt on or they all have a flyer with them or a donation envelope. And I don't go, I've never went out to a rally and ever asked for anything. I just, my, my message at every single time I get up to speak at a rally is go out there and vote. Get out there, get active and vote. Or we're gonna have the same situation we just had in this last election where we lose everything and then we're here, here complaining about it. You need to get out there and vote. That's what I'm asking people and millennials to do too, is get out there and vote. Because right now we have the opportunity to show for the first time that we can tell anybody in DPS, it's not just being a black, but being a black student, but you can, we can officially say, you can be anything you want to be in, Den- in Denver including a school board member you can be politically active as a young person or in november are we going to continue the same ways that we've continued to deal with is say young people we value your voice we want you to get empowered because it's the same old people that are complaining about young people not getting involved are the same old people that are trying to tell me that i need to concede to one of my opponents and say give them this opportunity because they're experienced or polished and i say no because you cannot complain about we not caring, and then when we care, then you complain about us caring. That makes no sense. So I have uh, two more brief questions. I know you have to leave. Um, let's say you do win, but the rest of the incumbents also keep their seats. How do you plan on pushing for change when you're in the very small minority of school board members who are in favor of your platform? It is really short and simple. I will be the biggest thorn in their side until the next election, and then I'm going to work to make sure that we flip the other three positions in um in 2019 if i'm the only one elected and i'll make sure that we because there are going to be two positions that are going to be unopposed um two people term out and then one's going to be in uh northwest denver um and so just give me one second that's hard to see um and so i'm going to be the biggest thorn in their side they're going to understand what it means to have me on the school board for three years, just being a, a jab in them and saying, nope, nope, nope. And you can best and believe when they, if I'm the only voice and they try to do the whole, oh, let's groom you into us, I will expose them at every single chance that I get. If, if I sit in a room, a closed door room, and they're like, hey, Tay, we need you to vote this. And I, I say, all right, say it to Snapchat real quick or tell, tell my voters that you want me to say this um, because I will not hide from my voters i will be the most transparent board member that's ever been elected i will be the most accountable board member that's tra- that's elected because i want to make sure that my voters know that it's not about me it is not about tay anderson my name's on the ballot i might be a representative but this body is representing the rest of seventy-six thousand voters that are going to vote in november awesome and then this is a question that we always use to wrap up the podcast what's one book that you think people probably haven't read about politics or just something that's influenced your life that you think they should probably read? Um, books. Mm. Uh, I just started reading Hillary Clinton's uh, post-campaign book. Um, is it, It's called Shattered, I believe. Um, the, the title might be longer, but check it out because it's a, it tells about what how the campaign failed. 
and what did they need to do in order to make sure that they won the White House. And so that's what I'm looking at is making sure that I'm not focused on too much of because um, what one thing the Democratic Party failed in this election is they focused so much on the logo and the name and the um, the woman aspect, but they didn't focus on the platform enough in those states that they needed to focus on. And so that's what I'm taking into consideration because as a young person, I want to be the flashiest candidate out there, but um, I don't want to have um, a, a flashy sign and a flashy logo and be the best, I could be the best candidate out there, but still not campaign in the areas that I need to and still lose. Awesome. Thank you for coming. Thank and you. Sitting down with us this morning.